Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Do we need to rethink sex? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This is the question at the center of a new book by Christine Emba, a columnist at the Washington Post. The title, naturally, is Rethinking Sex, a provocation. And it's one of those books that's very hard to categorize. And Imba, as a thinker, doesn't fit neatly into any ideological boxes. And that's a good thing. Her book is an attempt to answer a bunch of questions. But the main one is something like this. Why are so many young Americans so unhappy with their sex lives? Why are they, in her words, engaging in sexual encounters they don't really want for reasons they don't fully agree with. Imba's answer is complicated. She thinks the sexual revolution or the sex positivity movement has turned sex into a morally neutral and often degrading transaction. What I understand her to mean is that the price of sexual liberation has been a wide open dating culture that ironically enough has replaced old taboos with new taboos and made a lot of us, especially women, miserable. There are parts of Emba's argument I agree with and parts of it I don't. So I invited her onto the show to talk it through. We discuss how her Catholic faith informs her views on sex, why she thinks consent isn't enough, and what kind of sexual culture she wants to see in the world. Christine Emba, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. The subtitle of your book is A Provocation. Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Who do you think you're provoking? Or who did your publisher think you're provoking here? You know, the point of rethinking sex is, I mean, well, it's in the title. It's a push to reconsider some of the notions about sex and sexuality and what it means in our lives that we have held consciously or unconsciously for a while, especially post-sexual revolution and during the third-wave feminist movements. So it's a provocation to rethink how we talk about consent and the role that we've asked consent to play as an arbiter 
of whether sex is good or not. Rethinking the way that we talk about gender, about even the concepts of freedom, privacy, and equality, and what those are supposed to look like. I think that it would be a provocation. I hope that it's a provocation to conversation, to this rediscussion, not just to anger. But I do think that asking to take a second and harder look at the moral valence of sex, the ethical questions involved in sex, whether certain desires are healthy for us to indulge or not, does tend to provoke purveyors of what I call in the book uncritical sex positivity, which kind of seems like almost the third wave understanding of sex. The idea that sex is great, all sex is good, you should be having it, and as long as you get consent, nothing is off limits, and you shouldn't push people or question them. Okay, so what's wrong with that? What is wrong with that attitude? Because I think that attitude is, I'd say, a fairly common one, right? Or, Or maybe a predominant one, that kind of carefree attitude towards sex. What do you think is so harmful about that? Well, there are a few different angles into that that I get into in the book. The first, you know, is this idea that consent can serve a legitimating function for sex. That once you have two consenting adults, two adults who have agreed to do something, then there's nothing to criticize. There's nothing to interrogate. There are no more questions to be asked. I think that consent is a great legal baseline. It's absolutely necessary. It's the floor that we have to have below all of our sexual encounters so that they aren't actively illegal, actively assaulting someone else. But we want so much more from sex than not technically illegal, right? We want to ask questions about what we owe to each other, about the responsibilities that we have to each other, about whether sex is not just legal, but actually good morally and ethically. And so saying, you know, anything past consent, we don't talk about it, leaves out all of these really important questions, even about whether the consent was fairly gotten, whether we're actually helping our partner, whether what we're doing is even good for us. Okay, let's dive into it right now, this idea of consent. Part of what you say in the book and part of what I think you're saying now is that consent by itself isn't enough, right? That it's a good legal criterion, but a bad ethical one. When I read that, or when I hear that, I think it means that you think consent isn't adequate because we don't actually know what's good for us, that we're confused about our wants and our needs, about what's really good for our soul or character, whatever. And therefore, because of that confusion, we consent to things that are bad for us. And so we need to go beyond that as a kind of baseline standard. Am I wrong or unfair there? Is that a misreading of your beliefs? I think that's really true. I think it's very easy to consent to things that are not going to be helpful to us in the long run, that are not actually getting us towards either the sex or the sex lives or even the general human flourishing that we actually deeply want. On the flip side, I also think that consent can be used as kind of a fig leaf for selfishness in many cases. And we see this, you know, in the almost messier Me Too cases a lot, right? Where Louis C.K., for instance, his defense after masturbating in front of his co-workers and leaving them, you know, in some cases traumatized, he said, well, I asked first and they consented, so it was fine. (laughs) Or someone like, well, actually, I'm 
reading about the Evan Rachel Wood and Marilyn Manson case that's happening right now. And she talks about how she was abused by Marilyn Manson, how he, you know, enacted all these horrible behaviors on her that she didn't really necessarily want, but she was enthralled to him and this happened. And his defense for, yes, I electrocuted this person or I, you know, tried to brand her or I drugged her at certain points was, well, this was a consensual, intimate relationship. So why are you bothering me about this? And consent doesn't make that okay, I don't think. And I think it provides a lot of cover for people who would abuse it by getting consent ostensibly for activities they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, you know, I think one concern that I have on this front, right, is that this can start to feel a little paternalistic, right, for lack of a better word. And so, like, let me give you an example. So, like, we understand that beneath a certain age, right, someone is not legally able to give consent, right? That's why we have statutory rape laws, right? Someone is not mature enough to make those sorts of decisions. And the idea is that so if a minor consents to any kind of sexual encounter because their faculties aren't sufficiently developed, they have no grounding to make that kind of decision. It sounds like you're, you're almost saying something similar for adults, right? That in some sense, because we don't know what is good for ourselves, we can't be trusted to make decisions about our bodies and what we do with them. And so therefore, we need further checks beyond just consent. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that is a pushback that I get for this argument a lot. And I think that it doesn't fully encapsulate what I argue throughout the rest of the book, actually. Yeah. So there are a few parts, I think, to what you're saying here. First of all, the idea that we don't necessarily know what we want or we may not know what's best for us. So one of the things that I suggest in Rethinking Sex is that we need to think harder and openly about what's best for us and what we really want from sex, from our relationships with each other, from our life at large, really acknowledging honestly where the ideas that we have that we're living by came from and whether they're actually serving us. And so by doing that, we actually come to a better understanding of what might be good for us. This is the idea of almost understanding the good. So I'll give you an example. In the book, as you, I mean, you've read it, a lot of it is often based on almost storytelling. I just have so many conversations and had so many conversations over the course of this book with young women and men and therapists and sort of everyone about what they think about sex, what they want from it. I spoke to one woman and what our conversation looked like was often representative of the conversations I would have. We talked about sex and she told me about how she was hooking up with people. She had encounters that were good but she also had a ton of encounters that she described as kind of depressing or traumatic or like, I wish I hadn't done that. I don't really know why I did that. I guess I kind of felt like I should for the story, like to be a modern young woman living in the city. Like I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing, right? Yeah. And so she's doing this, but it doesn't actually make her feel good. It's not bringing her to what she wants. So when I ask, okay, what are you trying to get out of sex? Like, what's your goal here? It's like, I think I, I would like to meet someone who cares about me and like have a relationship. 
my ideal kind of sex is an empathetic, caring encounter with somebody who is really interested in my pleasure too. And so then the next question is, okay, is what you're doing, is like your vision of what you should be doing with sex comporting with what you actually want from sex? And often the answer is, I guess, no. I guess I was doing it because like I thought I was supposed to be. And even just by thinking about, okay, why do we choose what we choose? And what would we choose if we had the choice? Why are we doing the things that we're doing now? And what would we be doing if we really rethought sex, rethought our assumptions about what modernity or feminism or whatever actually looks like? Just thinking through those aloud, I think, and in common, as opposed to passively accepting whatever media or other culture tells us brings us a lot closer to being able to enact what we actually want in sex. Yeah. Part of what I wonder is, in the case of this person, you know, she wasn't satisfied with her sexual encounter. Whose fault is that? You know, is it if she consented to it, right? Is it the fault of society? Is it just a consequence of her making a bad choice as a free individual in a free society? You know what I mean? I mean, part of what it means to live in a free society where you're able to choose poorly or wisely <laughs> is that sometimes you choose unwisely and there are consequences to that. And I'm not sure how to circumnavigate that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And so I think then the next part is, okay, we are not necessarily sure what we should do or we make bad choices or we just make choices that aren't great for us in the long run. That is free will. That is what being a human being in society is. And so one pushback that I think I've gotten to this critique of consent and this, you know, push to rethink the question of sex is, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to make it like illegal to have bad sex or, you know, (laughs) you know, bring down the law on anybody who has sex with somebody and it's not good? No. When I'm criticizing consent, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have it or that there should be consent police making sure that every encounter is ideal. But I also think that we can have better norms and a higher standard for what we look for in sex and what we expect of each other post-consent to ideally bring us closer towards having more good interactions as opposed to more bad or mediocre ones. And so as a higher standard, I propose in the book this idea of willing the good of the other, which basically looks like caring about the other person's experience, their good, their person, as much as you would care about yourself in any sexual encounter, and ideally trying to figure out what the good would look like for them and for you together, and aiming your encounters towards that, and recognizing that if you aren't able to figure that out, then maybe you might not want to have sex with this person in the moment. And this is, again, not a legal criteria. This doesn't prevent people from having bad sex. If you're not doing this, you know, the hand of the law is not going to prevent you from having sex. Right. But even just by trying to hold ourselves to a higher standard, even thinking through these questions before we do it, we're just more likely to end up in a better place than we would with just saying, well, as long as we've agreed to whatever, it's fine. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, American culture is awash in sex. So why are young people these days having less of it? 
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Why do you think young people are having less sex? I mean, I, I'm always fascinated by this data and no one, like there's a million different answers out there, but do you think part of the reason we, our generation, I don't know how old you are, I'm an older millennial, but do you think part of the reason our generation is having less sex is that so much of it is so empty or unsatisfying because of all these kind of cultural conditions that you're pointing out? Yes. Yeah, so there is data that says that we're having less sex. Nearly half of American adults and a majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years, where at a 30-year low of rates of sexual activity and partnership and marriage, and it's young people especially who are leading the retreat. And I think that that's, that's really depressing because it's a sign not just of people having less sex, the act, but not actually being able to find the connections they want and foster the relationships they want. But you're right, the data doesn't give us a very exact answer about why that might be the case. So, you know, people say that it's harder to date. The research also shows, especially during a pandemic, people who have a regular partner are just more likely to have sex. And so if it's harder to date and fewer people have partners, then they're just less likely to have sex and have less sex on average. But then there are also sex researchers like Debbie Herbenick, who actually published a really interesting piece, an interview in Scientific American a couple weeks ago, who theorized about other slightly more obscure, but also kind of depressing and sad reasons too, that 
young people are spending a lot more time on social media or on screens and not interacting with other people, that many young people have experienced sexual encounters that they found traumatic because more extreme acts have been normalized into the mainstream via pornography. And then they choose not to have sex afterwards. And that might be part of it. That's interesting. You know, you say in the book, and God knows you're right about this, we're not going to ban porn. That would initiate a revolt, the likes of which we've never seen. But if you were an all-knowing, all-powerful dictator, would you ban porn if you could? I mean, is porn part of the reason perhaps young people are having less sex? Perhaps it adds to the kind of transactional consumerism that worries you and, and frankly worries me as well? As a general rule, I don't think pornography leads to better sex or better relationships between people, especially for young people, I think, for many of whom it's their first experience almost with sex ed. You know, they see porn before they actually experience sex for themselves and they think that that's what it's supposed to look like. I don't think that that's helpful for them. I don't think that that's healthy for a lot of people. And also, I think if your sexual experience or your understanding of what sexuality is, is colored by pornography that you've watched, it tends to suggest to people that more extreme activities are normal or that you should try them out with other people, even if those people may, in fact, not want to. And it also suggests a certain way of looking at sex and looking at the other person. You know, the most common kinds of porn, the most mainstream, easily findable sorts of tube porn are usually shot from the guy's perspective and are very objectifying. Like a woman is sort of a hole to be used, to be satisfied and like guys go after it. And then even if a woman protests at the end, she's like, oh, that was amazing. This was great. I came so many times, which is not realistic. And then if that's the vision of sex that you have and you're enacting that in the world, it's not going to be great (laughs) for your partner, for the people who you get involved with. You know, I want to try to touch on some of these fundamental issues, you know, and I think I'm not even sure it's a criticism as much as it is just a question, right? Something you argue in the book, or at least imply, is that perhaps our sexual culture was better in some way in the past when it wasn't so liberatory. But that situation and the taboos that defined it were hard on lots of people who didn't conform to our norms or our mores about sex. And you know, I don't want to dance around like an obvious truth here. You know, like sex positivity has probably been a very good thing for, say, gay or trans Americans. And I'm not sure how that fits into your story or how you weigh those benefits against the cost. I mean, at the very least, there are lots of trade-offs that complicate things. And I do think that you're right about quite a bit, but I also worry about backsliding into an era that was maybe more exploitative and more repressive for lots of people, including women, as you point out in the book. Yeah, I think that that's a really important critique. And it's one that I try to think through in the book, although I think there are always areas in which I could have been more explicit about that. You know, you're right. We have made so much progress, you know, in the sexual revolution with the feminist movements. And I think that's great, especially for the groups you mentioned, especially for women, uh, for queer people, for people of sexual minority orientations who saw their desires and their personhood validated 
who were finally, or were at least meant to be, and we're still moving towards that, being treated as equal and valuable actors in society. I mean, I critique consent, but even the fact that we were able to get to a place where we said, actually, consent is important, is key, and you have to have it. That was a leap that took years, decades, really. And it's incredible that we've even gotten that far. That said, you know, we can appreciate how far we've come while also suggesting and realizing that there is still a ways to go, that some areas haven't seen so much change, and also that new problems have arisen, even out of the midst of new kinds of liberation. I think that we're not trying to go backward here, and I'm certainly not, but this is ultimately about moving forward from just a place where things are allowed to having standards of care that are helpful for all of us. Yeah, so there's a whole chapter in your book about some of the differences between men and women, and I think you think that well-intentioned, progressive feminists don't want to grapple with some of these differences because doing so might feed the impression that women are somehow inferior. And this is obviously something you don't believe, but you still think we have to acknowledge certain truths in order to understand who we are and what we need as sexual creatures. I guess what I'm asking here is like, what are the most important differences here? And how can we fold those differences into our norms and our laws to, as you put it in the book, create a framework within which women can develop and exercise real agency. Yeah, I think what you said is exactly right, that it's important to be honest about realities that exist on the ground and differences so that we can build a framework that actually treats people as individuals and looks to preserve and promote their happiness for the people who they are, you know, not who they're expected to be. I spend a good amount of time in the book talking about the sexual revolution and the feminist movements and the questions of where those movements hoped they would take us and where we've ended up and the sort of delta between the two. And one of the things that I find really interesting is how the feminist movement and sort of almost a a utopian ideal was co-opted by a broader culture. You know, when you think about what earlier feminists were saying, the understanding was we want women to be recognized as women for what they bring to the table and to be valued and treated as equals despite the fact that they are not men, (laughs) despite the fact that they may have different concerns. They should be cared for as well. But, you know, when you got to the sort of girl bossification, the sort of lean-in, later third-wave feminist movements, it seemed like it became less about we want to treat and respect women as valid sexual creatures in and of themselves, as important as and equal to men despite not being men, it was easier to fold that into, well, to be liberated, women should just be more like men. And the goal became sort of the male ideal is still the ideal, and the way that women become liberated is just to become more like the median man. So, you know, Playboy was still the standard, And women would be liberated by just becoming playgirls. And that, I think, is not really equality. Equality, I think, would be respecting women and thinking of women as they are and thinking of individuals, you know, as individuals, not as, well, they just need to become 
like the median ideal in the culture to be worthy of respect and to be able to exist in society, but to be able to recognize people for who they are, to be able to recognize the specific concerns of women, of queer people, of anyone else. You have to sort of recognize their specificity and be honest about what differentiates them to actually be able to come to a norm that also includes them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a good time to just zero in on on maybe what it is you find so kind of toxic about sex positivity. I mean, what is the feature of the sex positivity movement that you think has been most harmful? Is it the flattening of these differences? Is it this tendency to just treat everyone the same and sort of avoid some of these conversations about not only our differences, but what it is that we actually need in order to flourish and not just how is it that we can best and most easily satisfy our our impulses or our desires? I want <laughs> So I want to say that I'm not against sex positivity. Okay. Or I'm not anti-sex in any way, actually. And I think that that's a, a sort of firsthand pushback that I often get here. Like, you must hate sex in some way. But I actually think that there is sort of a misreading of the idea of sex positivity that has happened over time. Sex positivity, when, you know, first discussed, the term was first used by the writer and thinker Ellen Willis in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was like a very specific phenomenon there were what were seen as the anti-sex feminists, the Andrew Dorkins and Catherine McKinnons, mm-hmm. who wanted to ban porn and ban sex work. And there was then, as a pushback, a sex-positive movement that said that, no, women should still be able to have sex as they want. They shouldn't not have sex to punish men or you know, to try and be the moral arbiters of society. It's still important that women get to make their choices on their own. And this is what sex positivity was defined as, the idea that women should still be able to make the choices that are helpful to them, not just be defined against the other. But it almost feels like today, the idea of sex positivity has taken on a different valence. When it's talked about in sort of a general media culture, it's almost seen as the idea that sex is the best and you should be having it all the time. You know, that liberated women are horny and out there and, you know, up for anything always. And this is what being sex positive looks like. And I think that that is questionable because, you know, it's not actually liberatory to push people to act a certain way. That's not, in fact, freedom. That's just a new stigma in a different direction. And in some ways, it actually doesn't allow women to even really ask the questions, women or men, to ask these questions about, okay, what do I actually want? What would serve me? Instead, they're being pushed to act in a certain direction. This is part of where I think maybe I kind of just run into a bit of a cul-de-sac when it comes to the consent question, you know, because people want different things, right? You know what I mean? Like, there's some really kinky people out there who are like really into like, I don't know, stuff that may be weird to me or you, but they're not blinkered about that. That is what they want and that is what they enjoy. And it's not clear to me how people are, are being coerced into doing things they don't want, right? I mean, I this is the thing about moral neutrality. We live in a liberal democracy, and a liberal democracy runs on open-ended conversation. Right? That's the alternative to violence, you know? And if consent isn't enough, if enthusiastic consent even isn't enough, then I, I'm not sure where that leads us. 
So, you know, I would say that we're all individuals and we all have our individual desires. And certainly there are practices and sexual desires that in certain kind of relationships work better than others. You know, if you think about kink and kinky spaces or BDSM spaces, you can have relationships where people care about each other, where they've talked through their limits clearly and know what they want. And they enact whatever desires that they want to be enacting in this space of understanding and thinking of the other person's well-being. And I think that's very possible. But, you know, I also think that it's important to recognize that desire doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? That, you know, there are kinks that fetishize inequality or that normalize oppressive preferences and sex acts that very clearly eroticize degradation or dehumanization or objectification. And I think it would be good and in fact necessary to ask questions about what we accept and what kind of desires we should encourage or not encourage, not necessarily on a specific personal level and not regulating on you know, an individual level, but whether they sort of breathe into life oppressive structures and stereotypes that are likely to make society worse for us all. And then it's also good to try and ask questions about what we accept in order to find a norm that allows most people to feel that their dignity is being respected when they have sex, that they're not going to end up in a situation where they feel totally degraded and dehumanized and that they can expect something better as a general rule. And I think if it sounds vague, it kind of is because so much of our behavior is contextual and so much of our sexual practice is contextual. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't interrogate and question where our desires come from, what they're doing to us, what they're doing to the society that we're creating together. I'll give you an example, actually. In the book, I recount talking to a woman named Caitlin at a party. So first of all, one thing is that when you write about sex or say that you're writing a book about sex, people will just tell you things. Like it often feels like people have so many thoughts about sex and they don't feel like they have a place to be honest about them in some ways. So they will just tell you things. But I was at this party and I was talking to this young woman. She was really great about my age. And she was telling me about this guy she was dating and she really liked him. You know, she thought he was great. Everything seemed to be going well, except he choked her during sex. And she didn't really like that, but she liked him, so she had consented to it. But she just didn't know what to do. And she was asking me if it was okay for her to not like being choked, (laughs) to not like being surprised strangled by a guy that she was dating, because she had this impression that it was almost bad to be judgmental, that it was bad of her to be so vanilla and not into this thing that this guy liked, that she had to look for sort of outside reassurance or outside recourse to even justify not liking this and wanting to push back. And I think this story actually encapsulates a lot of what I'm trying to talk about here when I talk about the idea of uncritical sex positivity. The idea that it's expected that to be sort of a modern, liberated person, you must be so gung-ho about everything that you don't really have room to complain. That if you don't want to do something or if you want something else for your sex life or your relationships, you almost feel shamed. Like you can't push back and can't talk about it. 
I take the point there. And in the case of Caitlin, like she's an individual and she wants what she wants or, or doesn't want what she doesn't want. And that's within her rights, you know? Yeah. And look, I really can't say this loudly enough. One thing I genuinely admire about this book is the extent to which it really is grounded on a very serious religious worldview. It's a worldview that I don't personally share, but it is one that I take seriously. And I suppose I'm wondering if you think that your view of sex and sexual culture would make any sense if it wasn't anchored to your religious perspective. Do you think it depends upon that? Would it make any sense without it? Interesting question. And the answer is yes, actually. I'm Catholic. I converted my senior year of college. And, you know, I found that the Catholic Church had a much stronger sort of philosophical and theological backdrop and grounding and tradition of thinking about these questions, both practically and philosophically. And not just questions of sex, of course, sort of questions around all of the Christian faith. (laughs) In writing this book, I'm Catholic, but I was not writing this book necessarily for Catholic readers or for my priest to read. Like, hopefully he has his own sexual (laughs) formation that doesn't need my help. I'm not going to touch that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was writing this book in response to the many people I talked to, both religious and non-religious, who felt that they were existing in a culture of kind of sexual malaise Mm. and weren't sure what to do about it. In trying to figure out how to address some of these questions and come up with what a better ethic might look like, you know, I was looking for an ethic that would make sense to someone who was not religious, who was not me, that would be useful broadly. And so I spent a lot of time actually just asking people what they thought a good sexual culture would look like, what they want out of a sexual encounter that was different from the sexual encounters that they seem to keep having. And, you know, so many people intuitively said empathy or care, or there's one interview that's very memorable in the book that has to do with a a Danish man (laughs) that I won't give away on this podcast, but as one woman who is extremely non-religious basically said, can we not love each other for a single day, you know, that is what she wanted an ethic to look like. And I think that that is something that's shared by people, both religious and non-religious. Can I ask, do you think the idea of casual sex or just sex for pleasure and nothing besides, do you think that that is bad, like on its face? The idea of having sex for pleasure? Purely for pleasure, casually and for pleasure. No, not necessarily. Okay. Because one of the assumptions that you do challenge in the book is this idea, as you put it, that sex is a purely physical act. The the word purely is doing a lot of work there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sex can certainly be more than that, but it can also be just that. And I think that's fine. But I guess my sense is that you, you didn't think that was fine, but maybe I'm wrong about that. My sense is that you think that sex is necessarily a spiritual act or something infused with spiritual significance, whether we want it to be or not. And if we choose not to acknowledge that, it is to our detriment. You're right. You know, one of the very chapters in the book is titled Sex is Spiritual. And I do push back on the idea that sex is simply one activity among others, like among any other, that it doesn't have any particular significance. You know, sex is not, in fact, just like shaking hands with someone. 
And I think this was also something that, again, interviewing and talking to so many people, it was not a religious understanding. This was something that so many people felt kind of intuitively, even as they were having casual sex, as they were thinking about the role that sex played in their lives. You know, that isn't to say that sex means everything, that every sex act is ineffable and transcendent and changes the world. Um, <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> would be great. But that's, that's That has not been my sex, my sex life. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. But sex also doesn't mean nothing. Yeah. Sex isn't just like anything else. Sex can have, for one thing, really specific consequences up to and including the creation of a whole new person in between two people. And if sex actually does have a different meaning than other physical activities, it's worth treating it differently or at least thinking about it differently. Yeah. And I I think you're 100% right about that. And this is sort of going back to something I was gesturing at earlier. This is sort of just kind of where I end up on this, you know, and I, I almost see it as a kind of philosophical hurdle that your book can't quite traverse because I don't think it can be, you know, and I'll just spell out what I mean by that, right? Like you have a worldview and embedded in that worldview are value judgments about what is good and what is not and what we should desire and what we shouldn't. But we live in a pluralistic liberal society that takes as a founding principle, the notion that consensus on values isn't possible. And we simply have to live with our differences and rely on communication to sort it out. And, you know, the sexual revolution or the sex positivity movement, it did actually abolish a lot of deeply unhealthy and deeply silly stigmas. Just going back to the example I mentioned earlier, and I'm thinking of a gay American, homosexuality was treated as an abnormal kind of sex, a deviant form of sex. That's wrong on multiple fronts. But first of all, you know, homosexuality isn't a form of sex. It's a form of love. And I don't think you would disagree with any of that. But I guess I'm sort of asking if you think we'd have reached this place of equality without the sexual revolution first abolishing these stigmas. Hmm. No, I mean, I think I agree with you. You know, fundamentally, this book is not about again, trying to rewind or take us back to some time before the sexual revolution, some sort of halcyon day where sex was good and everybody knew their sexual place. Because I absolutely agree with you. The sexual revolution happened for a reason. The feminist movement happened and are still happening for a reason. We need that. You know, I think that we can recognize the benefits that we've gained, you know, less shame, more acceptance of sexual minorities, a recognition of the value of women's sexual agency, while still acknowledging the problems that have persisted or indeed have worsened. And I think what we want to do now is not try to go back to sort of a legal regime of sex, but actually think about how we can create norms in common, norms that are corrigible. And perhaps even reclaim past understandings that might have been useful that might actually paradoxically make our romantic landscape better and freer for people moving forwards. You know, it may be good, in fact, it is good that we have torn down a lot of ramparts around sexuality, around the ways we have sex, but it's also possible perhaps that we have lost some norms that would help people 
organize their sexual lives, understand their sexualities and, you know, move themselves towards a view of human flourishing. And I think it's important also, exactly as you were saying, to acknowledge that we live in a pluralistic society where, you know, norms and visions and values of what is most important probably will never be reconciled totally among us. But we can still work together to ask questions about what the good looks like, what morals are, what ethics are, what values we perhaps can and should hold. And I think that being open to that idea and being able to have that conversation allowed and together is what brings us forward, not sort of hiding our disagreements behind ourselves or in some sort of closet and never talking about them. We're going to take one last short break, but when we're back, has all this sexual freedom made us less happy? Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L. V-A-N-29.com. I don't know, this may come across weird, but in some ways, do you think we're too free? Because I detect in some of your writing, it's like a deeply Christian insight that maximal freedom is its own unique kind of bondage. And that may be part of the problem here is that 
because of the sex positivity movement, <laughs> we've unleashed too many of our impulses and that they have gotten the better of us. And as a consequence of that, we're less happy or less fulfilled. Yeah, that is the big question. Someone else also brought this up that Rethinking Sex is a book about sex, definitely, but it is also in some ways a book about what freedom means and what liberation means and what the gains and losses might be in different understandings of those things. I think that throughout the book, there is a a real strain of my criticizing what is almost the modern definition of freedom or the definition of freedom that we've currently embraced, which is sort of this full liberal autonomy, basically, that everybody is out kind of for themselves, that my actions should be maximizing my own desire and pleasure and good, and that where they interact with yours, they don't need to. You know, we're all separate people pursuing our own freedom individually. And I think that fundamentally that's that's wrong, that we are not totally free individuals, each existing in the void and never sort of bumping into each other. But that is the case, though, right? That we are actually individuals pursuing our own freedom as best we can, according to our own lights. Like, that's what our society is, right? There's no way around that. We are individuals, of course. That will be true and always should be true. But I also think that by nature of living in a society and interacting with other people, that we also have responsibilities to other people. That we should be trying to create a society that doesn't just focus on our will, but that actually thinks about the well-being of other people. I think that that's actually really important. And we can't just sort of selfishly only focus on our good. We have to take into consideration all the other people who we interact with. And then I think to your question about freedom, I do think that there is kind of a distinction to be made between positive and negative freedoms. You know, there's a freedom from, like a freedom to be able to do whatever you want to do and have no boundaries. But I also think that we can strive for sort of a freedom to, to have some understanding or try to have some understanding of what good looks like and also be able to work towards that. And that actually might mean limiting ourselves in some real ways or sometimes not doing the thing that we feel like we would like to do because we're trying to work towards something larger Does that mean that we are kind of less free and sort of this technical do whatever you want, anything you feel, anytime sort of idea? Yes. But is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think so. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, the problem is that there isn't a a shared capital G good, right? It doesn't exist in our society. There are goods. There are many different visions of, of happiness or satisfaction and and we're all pursuing them. You know, liberalism to me is, as far as I know, the best way to manage that plurality, you know, without violence. And I'll just say, kind of in keeping with the spirit of the book, part of me wants to argue that if we went back even further in time in the way that you do, we might see that sex is something that gets constantly redefined and stigmatized and problematized in all sorts of ways that probably lead to some of the anxieties that we have around sex today. And in a lot of ways, I feel like maybe you think it's better to double down on the mystification of sex, uh, whereas I tend to think our puritanical discomfort with the body has made sex harder to talk about, <laughs> harder to do. 
and probably it's been detrimental to sex education and the physical health of people. The mystification of sex. That's a really interesting way of putting it. One of the things about this book, one of the points of this book, is to talk about sex, to have conversations openly about what we think sex means, what we think sex is, what we want from sex, what we want from each other, what we think freedom looks like, what we think our norms should be. We should be talking about these together. You know, again, I think that it's really important that we don't treat sex as something to be walled off and not talked about at all until some later perfect date when you're married or whatever, but that we actually continue having these discussions in common so that our assumptions are corrigible and so that we can actually figure out where we want to go and aim towards that. You know, I think my vision of sex education, and this is something that I talked with a lot of people about in the book too, is, you know, sex education that's not just about, A, about nothing, you know, abstinence-only sex ed, where you just don't talk about sex except for how it might kill you or something. Yeah. And also not sex ed that's just mechanical. So watching porn and just like seeing how people do it and imitating that. Or even in schools talking about, okay, well, this is the uterus and this is the penis and this is how they work. That's all we're going to tell you. But also talking about what relationships look like, how we relate to each other and how sex fits in. Kind of having a larger frame for this conversation than just the will they or won't they? Are you doing it or are you not doing it? I think one place where we maybe converge a little bit is your book is very interesting to me as a piece of cultural criticism. And something I detect throughout the book is a lamentation on disconnection. And I don't think that is a consequence of our sex culture. I think our perhaps unsatisfying sex culture is a product of our social disconnection, is a product of our, you know, hyper consumerist culture. Absolutely. I I think you're right. I think we probably agree on that. I think one of the threads running through the book is how a culture of total capitalism in some sense is looking at everything through a view of commoditization and marketization. And Mm -hmm. yes, this individualism and autonomy that is about, you know, me getting mine from you has its outflows in a sexual culture that then looks like people treating sex as something to get from the other person that looks like using consent as permission to get something from you in this sort of antagonistic relationship instead of an opportunity to create something good with another person, to be with them in a relationship. You know, I talk a lot about dating apps in the book, and they're a perfect exemplar to me of how a culture of transactionalism and commoditization just totally enters and is perfectly reflected in how people end up having sex. And I I think it's really sad, actually. But yeah, I think that many of the problems with our sexual culture are downstream from this bigger problem. Yeah, yeah. I I got married kind of right before Tinder became a a thing. Wow, congratulations. Good God. (laughs) I'm thankful for it, honestly. Like, I don't, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. And I'm glad I I missed that particular boat because I'm not sure that would have been good for me. Yeah, it's funny. You know, at the Washington Post, I'm an opinion columnist and I, I write a lot about sort of these cultural trends. My beat is ideas in society, which is kind of everything. But especially in the past, you know, 20 to 30 years, we almost have this life cycle of new technologies where like something happens 
like the iPhone comes out and we're like, oh, this is so amazing. This is great. And then 10 years later, we're like, oh, wait, this has made my life kind of terrible. (laughs) And we're actually at that moment with, I think, swipeable dating apps right now where Tinder was launched in, I believe, 2012. It's now 2022. And we've almost sort of made the full circle from it being like, oh, this is exciting and new and cool. This is allowing people to meet a lot of different people who they might not have met has made it like way easier for sexual minorities, for example, to, yeah. you know, meet other people. And, you know, being excited about that to this big switchover where dating apps suddenly overtook any other way that people used to meet sexual partners or romantic partners, whether friends, colleagues, family. And now we're in this moment where we're like, oh, does this suck? This kind of sucks. Why did we do this? And I'm wondering what that reconsideration will end up looking like, but I'm hopeful in some sense too. Yeah, as am I. And I just want to end by reiterating something I said earlier. What I hear in your book is a real concern, a spiritual concern for human flourishing, for the human character and the things that degrade or ennoble it. And even when I don't agree, I respect the richness and the depth of thought. And to the extent I've pushed a little bit on some of your ideas, it's a product of my taking them very seriously. The book is called Rethinking Sex. It is available now. You should go and check it out. Thank you for being here, Christine, and for having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.